This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 601 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name's James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show, David Vo. Now, David spent a full career working for the London Fire Brigade before transitioning out after an injury and ultimately becoming an osteopath. So we discuss a host of topics from his journey into the fire service, some career calls, strength and conditioning, aging, the world of osteopathy, and so much more. Before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of over 600 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you David Vo. Enjoy. David, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time and coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today. That's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. I've really been looking forward to it. So where on planet Earth are we finding you my morning, your afternoon? Yeah, a bit of a giveaway. 
I guess that one, isn't it? I'm, I'm in uh, the UK. I'm in uh, Kent, which is about half an hour drive from um, uh, the coast, the south coast. So, yeah, it's uh, quite, a, quite a rural village I live in, but um, formerly um, lived all, all over the UK. But yeah, I find myself in Kent for the last year or so. My dad's side of the family were based in Ashford. I don't know how close you are to that. Yeah, not far. Yeah, so we're we're kind of like fifteen minutes into the the kind of farming land outside outside of Ashford and towards Rye in that area. Okay, you know. Yes, yeah. yeah, yeah, vaguely. I mean, like I said, I'm not well versed in it, but we were down there a lot visiting my uncle and my great uncle and all those guys when they were there. Um, yeah. So I would love to start at the very beginning chronologically. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Uh, I was born in London, southeast London in the 70s. And uh, um, into a family uh, where my father was a London fireman uh, and he did did his 30-odd, 30-plus years and then retired. So I was born into... Um, very early memories of being on a fire station, actually, um, and very early memories of going along to inter-service sports events and things like that. My dad was a, a rower, um, but not the kind of Oxford and Cambridge Olympic rowing. It was kind of heavy boat traditional rowing, so, you know, old um, Navy whalers, and they used to race. There's an annual race between um, the fire service, the London Fire Brigade, the Navy, uh, the Marines, uh, the police, and the army, and I remember, I remember very, very vaguely um, going along in one of the support boats. I must have been three or four. It was a very early memory of of that, and all the kind of people in uniform and um, being on the River Thames, going under all the bridges, following because it used to go from HMS President um, to Cannon, no, from Cannon, Cannon Street Bridge to HMS President down River. It used to go, you know, past HMS President. And then past all the, you know, under Tower Bridge, and it was really exciting. Um, so that was one of my earliest memories of of um, fire service, as well as, you know, the inevitable visits, you know, um, to, to visit Dad. He was stationed in southeast London, and it became normalised for me um, to be around that. There's a particular smell um, I remember um, becoming familiar with, you know, the sort of damp um, and uh, kit, you know, just oil, things like that, um, which are very ingrained. So my mum was a nurse. Um, and my sister, Sarah, um, is two years older than me. And, um, yeah, that's, that's where I was born. And it was, as I say, early in the early, in the early 70s, um, we, well, initially my sister was actually a baby in arms. And um, when my dad was, um, um, he, I remember he, got the chief officer's medal the recommendation because they had these most ridiculous rescues they had to do. We got, I've got a paper clipping of it somewhere. There's a picture of me being up on my mum and my, and my sister who's two. So I'd just been born and um, yeah, my dad was being commended by the chief officer and um, at the time. And um, when you read the clipping, it's just nuts. You know, it's old school, take a deep breath and run in, snatch rescues, um, hook ladders, which we've discussed before. Uh, you know, they were scaling multiple floors with hook ladders to gain to gain a flat roof of a hotel and then up again and again and again and rescuing people from the inside. So, you know, this was this was the early 70s, and um nothing like that 
you know, certainly now happens. But you know, the and uh, my father's still alive, Del Del Vo, and he's he's still alive, and he only now and is nearly eighty. He's he's starting to kind of occasionally tell a story about it. He's kept it um, to himself. We've been pushing him to write a little memoir or something. But those were the days, man, when you were literally out on a limb. You know, literally all you had was a cork helmet and uh, rubber boots and a pair of old gardening gloves which used to melt um, in the heat. Which uh, <laughs> and the helmets were black, which isn't very helpful, you know, in terms of high vis, is it? So it's like you know everything was against you in those days. So if you came through it, I pay huge respect to anyone of that generation. Um, um, I mean, I came in to that the generation after that. Uh, you know, had it easy compared to that. Um, but I suppose every generation feels that. When my father probably looked back and was working with people when he was stationed in central London who were coming to the end of their career who had served in the Blitz. So, you know, that that he probably felt, God, this is easy compared to that, quite rightly, I guess. But, yeah. So, yeah, we we moved out of London um, and down to Kent um, in the mid-70s, I believe. And then, you know, started with uh, just normal kind of um, UK schooling system, which um, in in Kent and the, you know, the... Uh, the part of Kent that we were in at the time um, had a lot going for it, but didn't have one of the things it didn't have going for it was, you know, a, like a forward thinking schooling system. So I kind of fell a bit behind. Um, um, and, you know, it was, was really struggling actually to keep up with just normal stuff. And I remember feeling a lot of frustration and wasn't really, you know, academic. Well, I was, Within the parameters in which they were measuring people, I wasn't academic. And that was in like a 1970s parameter. Um, and it turned out that, that, you know, I was then, you know, pushed into more of a remedial class, remedial class, remedial class, and um, went subsequently to our system. You go to 11 and then from 11 through to 16, although that was in those days, to a comprehensive school. Comprehensive being a school you go to, you don't pass 11 plus which is a grammar school, uh, and um, then went there. And again, struggled for the first few years. I came out of that school with, with um, probably three equivalent of what we called O-levels or GCSEs to my name, um, which actually at the time for that school, I was like considered to be, you know, you know high achieving. That's terrible when you think about the kind of aspirations that we have for our children now. Um, and kind of at that point, was a little bit lost i would say i was a little bit lost i didn't know you know i didn't i didn't really feel as if i was never being told that university was an option for me um i'd always wanted to join the services um but again i was i, I was i was a bit lost as what to join and uh, what to do because i felt as if i have i felt as if it was a, a kind of inevitability to be in uniform because everyone around me growing up had been so I looked into joining um, uh, the Marines. Um, I looked into joining the RAF because I was really interested in, they had a role, and I think they still do. Um, it's called Loadmaster, which um, you do a tour, you train, you're going as a sergeant uh, aircrew, but you are the guy in the winch, rescue helicopter. Um, and you also do time as a dispatcher and a loadmaster on, on, with paratroopers and then um, logistics on bigger planes. And I thought that was a really interesting role. So I applied for all three at once. Um, um, and 
the fire service um, got back to me first. I was 17 and um, officially a bit too young, but because I had applied um, and I wrote a letter saying, look, I'm a bit young, but by the time you process this, I'll probably be 18. They quite liked that, that initiative. And I got an interview at 17 for the fire service, which to be honest with you was um, a bit of a lifeline if I'm being honest, because I wasn't going, you know, I was kind of just a bit lost and wasn't really going anywhere in my local hometown. Um, and it was strange because at the time it was quite, it was still quite a deprived, um, area to live in. And, um, you know, when it, when I kind of did, I was successful and I, you know, got offered a place in recruit training. Um, you know, you think I'd been offered a place as an astronaut at the time, you know, it was like, well, you're going to London and you're going to be a fireman. Um, because as I say, it was, it was a deprived town and we weren't told you know you can go to university if you want to you can study if you want to yeah there's none of that around but in the time you finished at 16 that was it um if you were lucky you went on to do something else in education at the time well certainly in my my sphere of experience at that time anyway so yeah then then um i would i would say my kind of um real experience of the fire, the real experience, not just like, you know, the family experience of being in a fire service family, but the real experience of the brutal reality of uh, recruit training hit when I was, I just turned 18. Well, just kind of going back for a second, you've got an amazing, you know, kind of lens having a dad who had a full career in, in the fire service and who worked with, you know, Blitz firefighters, an interesting kind of mm. realization for me or discovery was after I was a firefighter and sadly he already had dementia by this point so there was no interaction but my great uncle um, I found out was the highest ranking I think it was a volunteer officer during the blitz so he was you know at home seeing all that stuff so he had some firebrands and some pretty cool kind of memorabilia um, but with when you talk about being a firefighter in the 70s and having not only making rescues with the pompier ladder which is incredible and you don't see them on any <laughs> any fire station i've ever worked in you don't These, have them there either no they're, they're kind of oh, a, okay. they're, they're a relic you know what i mean they're yeah, yeah, they're, they're an yeah. admired relic definitely same as uh some of the other you know the the american fire helmet should also be an uh, you know, an admired relic but that's a whole other conversation um but um but you so you have Back then, clearly an understanding in the importance of fitness. And I know you became a PTI yourself in the fire service. When he did talk about the, the time back then, what emphasis was there on sports and or physical training and, and understanding how that importance, uh, that importance in the fire service specifically? It was very fun. I mean, they, I mean, they played volleyball. They played volleyball. You know, they, uh, volleyball was encouraged. <laughs> Uh, but there wasn't a lot of strength and conditioning going on. There wasn't a lot of tactical fitness training going on. Um, in the 80s, they started to introduce things called multi-gyms to London Fire Brigade, which was just like your, your average kind of modular gym set. And you know, most stations got them, but they usually gathered dust. Um, I think, you know, in it, I think it was later that it became um, obvious. I think I think they were fit. I think they were very functionally fit because with their training was drilling. They drilled, you know, they did a lot of hands-on practice with kit. They did a lot of heat and humidity type training. You know, they, they did, um, they drilled every, every evening, every daytime with, with heavy ladders and heavy equipment. So, you know, that we know that that gets you fit. And I think we, we touched upon that in one of the other talks we've had in that I find it fascinating having been in, 
physical conditioning now for you know best part of 30 years that it goes it's gone in a full circle that these guys um who were able to perform at speed accurately you know to achieve a given task with heavy technical equipment were fit they were fit because they didn't have technology um they didn't have the benefit of high um high development in terms of in terms of lightness of kit breathing apparatus if you're lucky if you had one in those days actually um you know everything was heavier so i think that's where their their training was but i don't think there was a direct parallel drawn i mean to get into the fire brigade i know london they used to have um their fitness test was pick up one of the staff members can you run 100 yards in under a certain amount of time you know and then it went to um can you carry a sandbag and then i think it got more technical they started doing um started doing um step tests started doing bleep tests step tests um and then they still do have a strength element to it but interestingly i noticed the british army with their one of their entrances entrance tests now is obviously a run test but also have like you know a carry test which i think is actually a really fair test because it's ultimately um it comes down to that. And when I was a PTI, um, you know, I used to be quite um, quite particular about passing or not passing people because there are certain things I was looking for. And particularly I was measuring it against would they be able to carry me out of a fire? Um, I don't care what sex um, they were, as long as they could do it, I don't care. But I was quite strict on that because, um, you know, there were ways of, I, I feel there are ways of getting around certain tests. There's always a way to do slightly better on a test. And, a function we weren't allowed actually at the time when I was a PTI to do to do the carry tests. We had to be really kind of quite technical to a step test and a little strength test, um, which I didn't always feel was a right filter for that. But anyway, I'm digressing slightly. But back in my dad's day, um, you, you stood or fell on, you know, could you pull your weight, I think. Um, and, you know, I think there were people who found out who couldn't, but... Um, the 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 rise of fitness training and and functional fitness training, I think, you know, probably late 80s, mid to late 80s, you know, the rise of gym culture in this country probably paralleled it. Um, you know, the rise of things we used to have thing, I think called an ultra fit magazine when they used to do lots of who's a fittest guy in the UK. Uh, and and used to get then we did um I actually, I actually, when I was in the service, I was one of my suggestions to them was we should do something like this and try and find you know the UK or London's fittest firemen and the UK's fittest firemen. And around about that time, also we had the World Firefighter Games that that were also taking off, um, which which started to then I think focus people's minds on you know that kind of functional tactical um, conditioning. Yeah, it's interesting with the the full circle as well because I know I remember like being. I was born in 74. So, you know, I, I was kind of a young man and teenager up through the 80s. And it almost got too technical. And I see the kind of tail end of that now where, you know, people want to do like max jump tests and VO2 max tests and, you know, which is great in the sporting world. But I think it overcomplicates the tactical athlete space when you can literally test, okay, pick this, you know, host pack up, climb these stairs, you know, advance this, this. You know, hoist the hose up, you know, pull this dummy, advance this hose line, and then no one can complain. Yeah. It's not fair. It doesn't matter if you're 300 pounds or 100 pounds soaking wet. 
if you're wearing, wearing the uniform, you're required to move that equipment a certain way. And so seeing, you know, our forefathers be very, very, you know, functionally fit purely by just using the tools that we use, you know, for the job rather than either trying to kind of bring the bar down, which you see a lot, and or overcomplicate it with, you know, the sports science world. It really is, you know, the, we don't need to reinvent the wheel. They, they were doing a lot of things right. And if we just go back and look to what they were doing, um, you know, I would say 80% of it was absolutely pertinent today. I'd agree. Yeah, I do think you're right. I think we, 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 we're, we're on the tail end of it becoming very technical. You know, health and fitness full stop, you know, the fitness industry full stop, you know, we're now doing DNA testing and putting patches on to give us feedback you know, instant feedback of, you know, our hydration and stuff. And that's all great. But, you know, you, you, you generally, if you've trained a bit, you have a feel for where you are. I mean, it's interesting that point you make about, you know, functional testing. I, I agree. I think it's a really fair test. If you've got a test that, you know, there's a definitive line to cross um, and it's a meritocracy then, you know, we know that anyone who that can do it is there on merit. And I think there's something in that. I think there's a rite of passage. Some of the some of the harder tests that we had to do when I was a recruit, you know, so I was eighteen, and I, 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 I you know, I just thought I was quite fit. wasn't wasn't fit at all. You know, it almost killed me. I was struggling for the first five months. I only really kind of caught up the last month, but because I wasn't mature, I wasn't, um, I wasn't, I wasn't able to put it together. Put it together. I had certain point things I was good at physically, and certain things I wasn't because I had never really. Um, um, been asked that you know I'd never really been put in situations where you know you're asked to do something you know like carry a telegraph pole run with telegraph pole we had something called the rocket run which was a right of passage they don't do it anymore but you had a, basically a telegraph pole and you had to carry it and there was a route that came out of training center which was in Southwark I think you had um, six to eight people on there depending on your squad and the PTI and the squad instructor ran with you and I think it was a six mile run. It doesn't sound like much, but that's quite a long way. That sounds like a lot with a telegraph pole on your on your shoulders. Yeah, and then they'd stop you in the, one of the riverside parks, and you'd then do all the kind of normal kind of you know horrible beast things, you know burpees, and then get the pole and up you go with it. And um, yeah, I mean, I'm saying that made us better, but it certainly you left you left that training establishment having felt like you know um felt like you've 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 earned your right to then start on the station on the on the actual station which was then another four years training after that on the job training but that six months of recruit training was pretty intense and uh yeah, i met some um you know quite scared i was only 18 i was quite from quite a sheltered you know kentish kind of upbringing and you know it was some big scary guys who are ex-military who were joining as recruits and also some really outwardly scary instructors pts and general instructors who were inspirational still are inspirational in my life now you know i would never forget um the uh, gentleman called dave smith who if, if he's still alive then but he probably is he's probably fitter than me right now this was this <laughs> he's that sort of uh, man, uh, he was a station officer at the time. Um, had a lot of respect from the recruits because he worked on a really busy um, station in Poplar at the time, which was which was notorious to be a very busy part of London, like quite serious um, place to work. And um, I remember him saying that 
you know, for him, you weren't fit unless you could run a marathon under three hours and bench press 300 pounds. And at you know, the same I time, I can't do that now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, whilst benching. You know. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I just think, whoa, uh, and, you know, I didn't know what that meant at the time. You know, anyone who's, who knows anything about that, you know, I mean, both of those things, you know, under three hours is you're a good club level runner, you are a top end club level runner. And 300 pounds bench press. That's entry level strong. That's strong, you know. And um, you just think, yeah, and this guy could do it. And when he was my instructor, he was 45 already. And, you know, and his his party piece was, um, I mean, as a recruit, you have to be taught, taught everything, you know, how to wear a uniform, how to slide down a pole, right, everything. And he took us to the local fire station and he said, that here's the pole. And then he, he got onto the pole and he went hand over hand without using his legs up the pole into the little cockpit bit where you come out of the building and then came down it and showed us. And everyone was standing there going, who is this guy? You know, here's the introduction to the real world. Um, you know, you thought you were fit, but you're not. Um, but it's certainly given me something to chase the rest of my life in terms of strength and conditioning because that hybrid model of fitness, which he was talking about, is tough man that's that's a tough thing to try and achieve well i think what's powerful about that is when you show up and i've had such a diverse spectrum that i've worked in i worked for four departments professionally one on the east coast and the west coast and i would say i work for probably one of the best departments in the states you know if not on the planet um arguably one of the worst and then a couple in between but when you show up and your PTI and, and normally in, in academies you don't have like a, a a person specifically for that but your cadre your instructor cadre and they walk the walk and they are doing stuff that makes you you know you have to kind of push your mouth closed after watching them work that sets the bar for you conversely when the guy that's teaching you their BA strap is barely hanging on for dear life and they're telling you to do things because you know damn well they can't, that sets the bar the other way. And I think that's something that's so important. You should have your rock stars in the training department. Now, a lot of rock stars don't want to be in the training department. We want to be out there kicking doors in. But that's that's the bar. You just walk through a door and that is your first impression. And here you are talking about a guy 30 plus years ago that left that indelible you know, mark on you. Um, you know, I think that's, that's a really interesting kind of perspective that you, you painted. Like we have the opportunity to either inspire or demotivate our candidates when they walk through the door. Yeah, that's very true. That's very true. And he, you know, he, he's left a, uh, indelible mark on me. He was just my squad instructor. The PTIs were a different animal altogether. Um, they, they were probably another level on top of that. It was just nuts. And it was a real, um, humbling moment in my life. Um, and I think it was for most of us, um, unless you maybe had been in um, some kind of special forces, because it was just um, scary. And I didn't honestly, I, I didn't think I would be able to get through it at the time. Um, and that was the truth. You know, I, I you know, I, I didn't feel like I was physically able to perform the tasks. Um, and I wasn't initially able to do it without just being completely exhausted. I remember I'd go back to where I was staying. I just pass out. I was so exhausted, you know. Um, but I think, you know, just hanging in there, you know, we had a really good squad. We had a really good squad, uh, really good. And that's what gets you through, you know, um, all the instructors will only call you by your surname. 
And there was this thing where on pass out day, on on um, the day you you leave, then they'll call you by first name and have a beer with you. And that was, I think that's quite relevant. That's probably a shared experience with with the armed forces as well, where, where you know you, you gain their respect on the day you leave. That's it. Not before. It's not really respect either, because they know you're just starting, but you know, you you pass that, you pass that stage. So that's just the start of it, really. Um, yeah, so. But I've always been fascinated by the hybrid model of, of training. And the gym, the gym that we had when I was a recruit in Southwark Training Centre was there wasn't any, there weren't any weights um, to speak of. It was all very functional still, even then. There were loads of ropes to climb. There were, we used to have a little bit of free weights. We used to do just circuit training all the time, circuit, circuit, circuit. We had a 12-station circuit called the Dirty Dozen and a 15-station circuit called the Filthy, Filthy 15. And they would just drill us on that, beast us to death, and then take us running afterwards, you know. Um, but it was, uh, by the end of it, you know, you come out feeling, like, transformed, you know, um, because not only can you do that physically, but then, you know, you're the master of all this other kit that you had to master as well. So alongside, as you know from your training, no doubt, that alongside all that, trying to just hang in there, literally hanging in there uh, physically, for six months trying not to get injured trying to keep trying to turn up with something else to give the next day then you had to also be intellectually trying to master uh, all the kit that we that we had to try uh, so the ladders the ba and um, the cutting gear um the hydraulic equipment you know um the pumps the fire engine itself you know just you have to master it so yeah that was probably i would say because I've gone on to do some other stuff that's been quite interesting in you know in academic fields and things like that. But that was definitely the hardest thing I've ever done in my life, that six months. Without a doubt, the most formative experience of my life. Now, when you have examples when the bar is set high, and I, again, I'll, I'll, my first department was absolutely like this. I mean, they put us through an absolute crucible for th- three months because in the US, you can send yourself to fire school, which most of us do. You get certified, you get EMT, and then you go to a department and try and get hired. Well, this department hired civilians as well. So they put them through all the schooling and they had all of us that all had our pieces of paper and they were like, all right. Let's do it. So for three months, they kicked our ass. Um, and it was amazing, though. And that shared suffering really, really bonds. So how close was that bond of that, you know, that hiring class that you went through? Is that something that stands today? Um, it was very close at the time. But it's a funny thing that happens is that you'll get on graduation day, you'll get there. Are, I think that by the end of it, there are about 10 of us left of initially 18, 19. Um, and you just kind of get spread across Greater London, and you bump into people um, occasionally. Uh, there actually is one person uh, I'm still close with, um, but yeah, it's a strange one. You kind of tend to um, you tend to just get on with it then. And what happens then is your crew, your actual watch that you are then assigned to, becomes that thing again. And if, and if anything, it becomes more important because then it's for real. Um, but at the time, it was a very close squad. Very, It was a good squad. There's some, some good guys and girls um, who all pulled their weight. So um, at the time, I I wish I'd had 
a bit of perspective, but it's hard to have perspective at that age. But it was there were there were great days. I remember there was about a week at the end of it where I actually just enjoyed it finally. I knew I'd passed everything and we were just kind of making up time before we were posted. And it was just the golden time because you were the king of the school, you know, you were the you know, you were kind of um, top bragging rights and you know, you were the the uh, the don, so to speak, of, of the training school, which was a ridiculous thing to say at 18, but you just felt like nothing. You know, you, you, um, you, it was the first real achievement of my life, I would say. Uh, but then, as inevitably happens, you come crashing down when you get posted to the first fire station. And then, you know, you realize you're nothing. You know nothing. We're going to reteach you everything you've learned because that's wrong. We do it this way. This way is better. And um, you don't like it, tough. Yep. FNG, as I say, fucking new guy. Yeah. Yeah, lots of buckets of water, um, you know, you name it, really, you know, the, the, the part of the joke. So I'm glad I did enjoy that final week in training school because it took a while before I enjoyed it again. <laughs> uh, you have to go through the ringer again, don't you? That's just the, that's life, I guess. Absolutely. But, I mean, that's that's the humility that you need in the fire service, you know. I mean, the moment you think that you know it all is the day you need to retire. So, you know, as a new guy, you certainly, certainly shouldn't have an ego. Now, you talked about four years. So explain to me what that kind of the four years after you leave the academy is like. Yeah, so it's, it's a um, – I believe it's changed now. But back then, um, you had to do your – to become a qualified fireman. So up until that four-year of probationer, to become a qualified firefighter, uh, you had to then do like a modular training course, which uh, involved um, practical exams at six months and a year, and then ongoing kind of case case study stuff that was overlooked by your senior officer on the station. And only after that um, were you able to then either um, apply for different roles or um, um, to call yourself uh, qualified fireman and then you know you take you've got a marking on your helmet which you can take off finally and then you're you're able to then go for motion you can act up and you know you can do temporary promotion and things like that and um, look a bit further into furthering your career at that point now at what point did you start getting into the strength and conditioning world was that after becoming a pti or that preceded it preceded that actually i was i you know i was on this tip because of, probably because of my school experience I, I was wrongly told really i think that you know, you, you know you're not an academic at all and you know you should probably just concentrate on the physical um side of things you know maybe you know so a, a role in the services it was, was probably a good thing uh, deemed to be a good thing which it was um but i was curious about education so i then um started thinking right, okay well i'm gonna try and better myself physically be the best firefighter i can be and that involves physicality. So I started doing pers- uh, gym instructor courses and then personal training instructor courses. It just wasn't answering the questions I wanted. And it was just primarily not to teach people at that point, but just for me, you know, so I could teach, so I could be my own PT. And I, uh, you know, used to then look for um, opportunities to go to summer school and universities and things like that. Um, and just kind of you know, try to see what the level of academia was and rigor was in things like sports science degrees. And so I did a few post undergraduate sort of tasters and stuff like that. And um, did a postgraduate certificate, which isn't a degree, it's just a certificate, but you do modules of that. And it was good for me at the time because it brought up my confidence. And um, 
at the time I was just looking at um, things like exercise physiology and, you know, um, exercise rehabilitation at the time um, with a view to maybe one day, you know, doing something a bit more um, rigorous other than just these kind of summer school stuff that I was doing. But it was nice for me because it was just dipping the water in the, dip my toe in the water of academia at a, at a lower level under no pressure. And, you know, I found that I enjoyed it. And so around about that time, I was also just coming to the end of my probationary firefighter uh, period and a, and a role came up um, that I applied for, which was to go back to training centre as a PT. And that was, that was for me, was an opportunity because I was enjoying being operational, but also I was kind of pretty focused on, on this kind of um, uh, educational side of things in terms of physicality. And at that point, I got myself at that point reasonably fit decided to give it a go and then so found myself being successful in that application and uh, found myself at four years later back at that same place um as a as a pti at that point well i also had to you have to double up so you have to i did a breathing apparatus instructors course um i was a road traffic um incident instructor and um, a real fire instructor as well which was fun that was really fun instructor training up at um it used to have a national training center at Morton and the Marsh and the Cotswolds, which I think still exists, but I don't think we use it anymore. So with the real fire, was that a, a burn building or did you? Yeah. Okay. So, so when was that this, the, the pallets or did you have LPG? What was kind of the, the source of the. Oh, anything. Like, it was nuts, man. It was pretty wild. I remember, I remember it being pretty wild. I mean, there were some, <laughs> there were some safety procedures in place, but. Um, there are a few instructors there I think who breathe too much smoke, you know, because they used to really, you know, they used to build those pallets up. I mean, it was ridiculous, you know, when people's face masks melting and all sorts of things before they called time, you know. They weren't satisfied unless someone had passed out or, you know, almost died um, back in those days. I think it's a bit more controlled now. I think we have purpose-built training facilities where you can just do that and it's empty of all heat and, and visibility is back to normal. But back in those days, it was pretty gnarly. I used to enjoy that. It was it was real training, real fire training, which is um, which is I guess um, has a, has its advantage when you do come across your first fire or first real incident. Anyway, yeah, I think that that worst case scenario is good under control. You know, I think my my first department, Hialeah, they had a very very unique training center. I haven't seen one since, but the the source of the actual heat came from a chimney so they would light this immense fire on the ground floor and then this chimney would go up and there'd be vents on every floor so on the fifth floor i mean they'd throw diesel all kinds of shit on the uh on the bottom and now looking back i'm like yeah <laughs> maybe real. maybe it wasn't quite within nfpa every time but but they also were very sensible with their pt and their recovery and all that stuff so that you didn't have it you know like face masks and helmets melting but they definitely exposed us to some extremes but it it served me really well down the road because i think you know if if safely the worst case scenario you've ever had is in training then hopefully no call is going to freak you out it's so true i think that it, um there's a fine line isn't there um but i agree that's what really good training is that it actually looks after you the rest of your career um luckily you know it's certainly it certainly looked after me a few times. My breathing apparatus instructor training when I went when I rotated back into operational after two years, that put me in great stead. Then I was um, I felt at that point I was a good wearer. You know I could really operate well. 
because I had the fitness and the, the 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 familiarity with the set to so, you know I could there was a period when you know I felt I was actually I'd achieved what I'd set I'd set out to achieve which was be the best operator I could be um, you know you know those classic jobs where you get a call and you're the first engine there and um, the governor the station officer would say right you two they choose the guys who the runner the runners you know and we'd do the snatch rescues and it was it was very exciting. And you know, physically able to be able to achieve that was a great feeling. Um, and then eventually, you know, taking some of the younger guys under your wing as well um, was a great feeling as well. You know, trying to um, just impart a little bit of that to them on the station as well it was good fun. But by that time, I think um, I then started to really get a bit more confidence in terms of I had two parallel things going on. Then I was then really interested in exercise physiology and my goal was to try and rotate back out eventually into you know the more technical aspect of um of the fire service so i was really interested in the rise of usar squads and really interested in the rise of a bit more you know, that we had a research and development um team which i thought if i can um get some education that's relevant to that i could potentially rotate there because then that then you're kind of traveling around you know talking about kit and then testing it and giving feedback and just that was interesting to me so i was beginning to kind of grow out of just that physical being i think and realized that i probably wanted to do more so i enrolled well actually what happened was um i went to explore whether i could do a master's degree now that's a big ask because i had three gcses i didn't have any academic qualifications and i was at the time i was a really competitive rower at the time and one of my rowing uh, crew has said oh I know someone at St Mary's University who's a row and also really open to giving people opportunities from unusual backgrounds academically so I just rocked up there one day um, um, to St Mary's and spoke to um, a professor called um, Elizabeth Pike who was a rower and I kind of did use that to my advantage and just you know we talked about rowing for half an hour I said look you know I'm interested in this MSc in um, exercise and health science and they say, well, they agreed. She said, if you can pass the first module, um, you can do the course. So um, it was an opportunity which I, which I took. Um, but I had no idea at that point. Um, no idea whatsoever at that point what that meant because I'd never done any, any real exams academically. And this was quite grown-up stuff. So I practised, um, had an exam in August, and I practised probably from February, March, writing essays. I had eight or nine different essay answers to what I felt would come up. I just practiced writing them longhand um, for hours at a time, five or six hours at a time, three times a week. On night duty, I'd be up all night just practicing them so that I could just churn out what I hoped would come up. And um, two of the three did come up, and I bluffed the third one enough to pass it. So I just scraped to pass. But I was in then, so, you know, I was then on the road to – you know, uh, doing that MSc, which was a great experience because it then finally gave me that that confidence to um, leave that that child behind that that I've been that I've been told was stupid, frankly. Um, that had no one had any any aspirations for that child, apart from my parents, obviously, but none of the teachers had um, had ever suggested anything like that. So I had to do it for myself, and um, that was hard because actually, as part of that MSc, they very kindly very very kindly they, they identify some stuff in my work and they very kindly offered to 
assess some of my my work in in with a view to dyslexia. It turns out I'm dyslexic, um, which isn't an uncommon thing. I think for servicemen, you know, um, I've I've heard a lot since then that we tend to gravitate to to, to towards more kind of um, functional, non academia or laboratory based work. So. Um, yeah, that, that that was actually like a weight being lifted off me because I realised that actually I'm not stupid. I just have to think differently. And I think at that point there was a bit of an awakening in that, you know, I do have to work in a different way and sometimes I have to work in a way that makes it harder. But, you know, I can do it and actually, you know, it became, it became a bit of a challenge then. I thought, well, what else can I do now? Now, your, your master's was in the occupational health, have I got that right? Uh, no, that was the certificate I did, occupational health and fitness. But the master's was in um, exercise and health science. Okay, brilliant. So and St Mary's in Twickenham. Now, did that take you to the R and D department in the end? Well, it didn't because I then um, suffered the first of what would turn out to be um, quite significant back injuries operationally. Um, so you know, it's like you pick up a few injuries here and there, and you just you work through it. Um, and it culminated. So, to summarize, what happened was that I had two or three injuries, which were little niggly things when you're lifting at awkward angles, or you know, um, slight small falls from some, um, short heights. Um, but one in particular, I remember um, there was a really awkward lift we had to do when we we're rescuing a casualty around. Um, who'd fallen in from a building but fallen into a sub-sub basement um, in London and there was a very narrow spiral staircase we had to get them out and they were, they were still alive and so we, we had them on a stretcher to protect the spine but then a stretcher and a narrow we had to go up like that and it, it basically meant one person one and one person the other and I was on the, the bottom end coming up um, and there were people trying to support me as I was coming up with it, but it was just too much. Well, I did it, but then I felt then I, it was the first um, indication of a disc injury, which then never really got better. Um, unfortunately, what happened was that um, I then had to sort of take quite a bit of time off to rehabilitate. And as soon as I got back, uh, on a, you know, just doing things like bowling out hose and stuff, it was there. Um, so I had lots of MRIs, uh, lots of... Um, consultations with orthopedic surgeons and um i was basically told that i wouldn't be able to be operational anymore which was pretty devastating at the time because you know this was up to that point in my life um and they were right because i had significant uh, nerve root irritation from two of my lower the, the two lower discs in the spine l4 l5 had both prolapsed and were pressing on to the left sciatic nerve in a big way and um, at the time, I was given the opportunity. I was it was they could do microdiscectomy, but the chances are that it would probably cause more trouble with scar tissue, or they could put a um, um, a bolt to hold the two vertebrae together to stabilise where the discs weren't doing the stabilisation anymore. But again, that I was very young um, to have that suggested, um, and so they said. Um, probably the best thing to do is, is go away and try and manage the pain, but you're not going to be doing any heavy lifting ever again. Um, and that was that. So I sort of lingered on for a little while um, in non-operational roles, which I hated. Um, 
and they they didn't really keep you on for that long event at that point anyway so you know I was out the door and into Civvy Street well I want to get to the transition in a second but just before we do because I mean you, your career spanned you know quite a long time when you look back what were some of the career calls that you remember my first ever night duty, Chelsea Fire Station, Blue Watch, uh, midsummer, red hot night. I turned up with my kit bag, knocked on the door, and was met by the station officer who was um, wearing a kimono <laughs> <laughs> uh, and smoking a cigarette. And he was a very lovely gentleman, never forget him, um, but a real character. And I think he put the kimono on for, uh, to wind me up. For the rookie. Uh, yeah, for the rookie. Uh, I'll never forget that as a welcome to the fire station. Um, but that night went on to be quite interesting because we were called about two in the morning to um, a person threatening to throw himself off the middle of the Albert Bridge over the Thames, which is one of the bridges on Chelsea Fire Station's ground. And at the time we had a turntable ladder, uh, a pump and a pump ladder, and we turned up there. And the station officer turned to me and he said, oh, sub-officer, um, Tim, he's a, he's a climber. Um, and you do a bit of climbing, don't you, Dave? And I, and I did. I, they knew I did a bit of, bit of climbing. Um, I was interested in it anyway. And I said, yeah. And they said, well, up you go then. And the Albert Bridge had a load of scaffolding on it. Um, it was an old Victorian raw iron bridge. It still is there. It's a beautiful bridge. Um, and there's scaffolding on it where they, every year they paint it. And back in those days, we had great big um, rubber-soled Wellington boots, just Wellington boots, right, with great big heels on them. And we had great big gardening gloves, which by that time were leather, but if they get wet, they just swell. And they're just there potentially to, to give you an initial line of defence, but they're not there to climb with, I can guarantee you that. So we climbed up. Uh, and out onto where the raw iron started. And this this gentleman, a young guy sitting there, actually had a, you know, he was obviously in quite a distressed state and he was going to jump. And he had tied something around his neck as well, which was just to make sure if he jumped, he would definitely um, die. But so Tim and I looked at him and Tim said to me, we're going to edge out there and I'm going to talk to him, hold on to my belt. And um, bear in mind those boots and the gloves. And I mentioned they were painting the bridge. So on the bridge, you've got these, you would have had big raw iron bolts that they would have eventually, they would have just done that and then connected them. It's like a big Meccano set. But after 150 years of painting, it was, there was nothing, it was, you were doing that. It was, there was nothing to get any purchase of. Everything was smoothed by paint. So we we're kind of edging out with the least grip and the least under your feet. We had about an inch to edge out like that. And I remember thinking, as Tim neared this gentleman, um, if he goes and we go, I was looking down and um, it was the River Thames. There's no riverboat there. It was, that was it. We were gone. And I remember thinking, this is a bad idea. What am I doing here? This is, this is really unsafe. I don't know why they think we're any different because we're firefighters, but I guess we were. So we were there and Tim went to offer him a cigarette and everyone stopped because no one was expecting that, including me. He hadn't told me he was going to do this. And I was thinking, oh, crap, if he, you know, what's going to happen next? And then the guy went to take a cigarette and, and Tim grabbed him by the wrist. And, there, and then everyone froze then because it was, this was it. He called his bluff. 
And um, I was thinking, because I had hold of basically a raw iron painted kind of girder with nothing. There was no purchase. And my other hand was underneath his belt like that. And if Tim went, I was either going to have to let go of Tim or go in. And it was a really interesting, I remember thinking at the time, I've got to go in. Even if I want to let go, I've got to go in. There's no way. I'll try, but I know I'm going in. So I thought, right, I'll try, but I'm going in. Because I just thought I can't be left up here. <laughs> if, if he goes in, I've got to go in as well. And I was thinking, fuck, I was, I was sorry to swear. I remember thinking at the time, this is really intense. I'm 18. This is intense. And the guy, thankfully, said, okay, okay, I'll come. And that was, that was day one. That was day one. Um, and I think it's often the way, isn't it? You, 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 you often remember your first intense experience and then maybe your last. Um, but that was certainly the first one. I mean, you know, I was stationed all around um, the West End, so there's always something going on. We had, you know, multiple, um, you know, tube incidents and all sorts of things. I think the last one I remember... And also, I remember being, um, remember starting to think that that you know, I wonder if this is uh, actually having an effect on me, you know, and hardening me. Is because um, there was a, a an incident where we had to go down and um, help the London Underground staff uh, get a casualty from underneath there, and we'd always been trained, as you know yourself, to that that hearing is the last thing to go. And this person was obviously very badly injured, but they were still alive, technically. And we were talking to her. There was a lady. We were, being under, we were talking to her. And one of, the, one, of the, um, one of the underground staff at the time was being, well, I won't say exactly what they were doing, but they were being more, they were being um, disrespectful to the casualty. Probably because that poor person as well, actually, the underground, on reflection now, the underground staff probably had been traumatized their li- in their lives by this sort of thing as well. But I remember, you know, it almost came to blows with that individual, you know, because I was very adamant that we should, we, we rescued them. And I had strong words with them to say that, you know, we should always remain professional around casualties. But that was the last one, because shortly after that, I was injured with that rescue that I mentioned you mentioned to you about. But um, in between, there's a lot of, um, a lot of fun as well. Um, but I was interested, you, you mentioned something. To me, which I found interesting, where you say I've been in the worst and I've been in the best uh, uh, squad, and you know I did eighteen years operationally, and I would say that when I was at Kensington on the Green Watch, um, everything aligned because there are a few individuals there who had the same ethos as me about being the best physical self, the best operator you can be. Um, and we had a really good station officer who used to give us all the time he wanted to train. They used to let us, you know, train for hours more than we're officially allowed to because it was all very functional. And he had the foresight to see that this is going to make his life easier. So he had some real athletes there at the time. You know, we had me who was into rowing and physical conditioning. He had a few guys who were really into rugby and like what would turn out to be CrossFit. We were doing it. Yeah, we were doing CrossFit back then. It was just happening. You know, we were turning tires over and, you know, climbing ropes and all sorts of things. And that was three years there where it was about as good as I think it could be. So, yeah, yeah, but only three years. 
Yeah, that's pretty much how long I had my dream crew. It was Anaheim, truck one. And uh, it's hard because after that, you're always chasing that, you know. And, and so for me, even yeah. though it wasn't injury, it took me out. The next few years, like one of my, my partner, you know, the firefighter I was with, uh, he's out with a really bad back injury now. He's had two surgeries so far. And my uh, engineer has, uh, you know, battled some, you know, PTSD stuff. And my captain of that rig retired out, you know. So that's the thing is that crew, even if I'd stayed, that crew wouldn't have been intact anymore. But it's a heartbreaking thing when you have that cohesive crew that literally you would die for each other. It sounds super dramatic, but it's true. And then you go to a place where there isn't ownership. People don't care if they're fit, you know, and that kind of thing. The leadership is checking your Facebook in their office for five hours a day. And you just, it's, it's maddening because you've seen it. You've been there. You've lived it. Like this is what it should be like. You're missing out on this amazing experience and on, on the fire ground and watching this cohesive team work together to the point where, Without, you know, like sounding like a narcissist, you can tell that you're one of the crews that a command is relieved when you show up. You know what I mean? And then to then not have that anymore is, is, is really devastating. Yeah. I think the, the lesson from that, we've had a similar experience there, is, um, is being able to actually appreciate what you've got when you, at the time, being in the moment. Because I don't think I was. I think I took that. For granted inevitably people leave they get transferred they transfer out they get injured but you know i guess at least you've had that that experience of what um real um functional rescue fitness is and actually that's what we're going to call it you know um so did i for a short period of time so that's something i'll take with me as well you know that was a and i'm still in touch with a few of those uh, those guys so i think that was almost more important than the recruit training days because that that really mattered that you know the, i mean obviously recruit training stuff was a shared experience but that time when you know it's life and death but not i'm, I'm not alluding to ourselves i'm alluding to if you do your job right or wrong it's life and death for someone else we never really thought about ourselves it was just about you know let's get the job done and um you know it's it's quite a rare thing i think i hear that all the time where if things align then um it, you're a lucky person if things align you're allowed to you know to develop that squad absolutely we're just touching back on you know one of the calls that you talked about the last place i worked at um served a very famous theme park and you know i was amazed at how many suicides we had obviously would never make the news and you know would, would shatter the illusion but when you go to new york when you go to london and you you especially the the transportation systems it seems like you hear about that a lot so was uh was that actually a frequent occurrence on the the underground yeah and train lines as well um we're we're all uh and the river actually unfortunately the river thames um quite a hot spot um for that yeah um it didn't really get talked about a lot but it was a regular occurrence yeah well it's something i've talked about recently is and I don't know if you have the same in, in England now, but I tell people I can name Navy SEAL that's famous now. I can name a Green Beret that's famous. You know, there's even now some SAS guys that are out there, but I can't really think of a famous firefighter. I can't think of a famous, you know, police officer. When I say famous, I mean someone that's, that's, that's a voice that is speaking 
you know, telling people about what we see. And, and I think that's one of the most heartbreaking things. And we just had a suicide here again, a firefighter locally. And once again, when it was put out, it was like died suddenly. No mention of the underlying, you know, what really happened. And I understand, obviously, the element of protecting the family. But they, mm. even in 2022, they're still kind of getting quietened. And I wish that we would have the the, the police and, and, you know, the, the paramedics and the firefighters as a resource because our perspective of what really happens in our city, our county, our country is so invaluable and so often completely contradicts what we're told on the television. Basically, now, you know, everything's fine and, yeah, we'll do a 5K for suicide, but apart from that, we're good. And meanwhile, you know, firefighters in all these metropolitan cities are pulling corpses from under trains on a you know, weekly, if not daily basis. I, I, it's so true. I, I don't know why um, you can't name, a, a, you know, someone who's associated with that struggle, you know, as an emblem, um, because we do it arguably as much as any other service. I mean, it it's fascinating to me that the soldiers and military personnel are better at this than us. That fascinates me. And maybe it's because they've had maybe a longer history of dealing with, you know, death and, and destruction, but, but arguably, you know, the fire service, paramedics, uh, police had their fair share too. And, and, and when I was um, operational, we didn't, we had access if we wanted it to a speaking therapist, a psychotherapist, but no one ever, ever did it because you had to go for your station officer. Everyone knew, that you had to take time off to do it, they'd know where you are. There was a shame around it back then. Um, there was a heavy drinking culture. Um, so paralleling the heavy physical fitness, there was a heavy nightlife bonding drinking culture, which is which probably is still there, um, which was where you spoke about, if you wanted to, maybe you'd go aside with one of your trusted friends and talk about it. Or you take it home with you, which is the, and then that is when it starts to become quite unhealthy. You start relying on alcohol and you then internalize it. Um, you know, PTSD was not a term when I was operational and, and nor was all the therapeutic tools that we have now to man, to manage it. None of that was available. Um, you, probably then and it was unhealthy but you probably then would not admit to having depression or or what was then ptsd um thankfully now a lot i think it's a lot to do with the armed forces actually um have been have been very proactive in in actually raising that as an issue and as a consequence it's now in the in in the national psyche that, oh yeah, well, yeah, of course you would have that. But interestingly, people don't associate that with firemen much, as much. I don't know why. Um, I know that firemen in the UK and in the States have, you know, really good, um, you know, the, the general public love us. Um, it's great. But um, in the UK, um, I, I wouldn't say it's something that's necessarily still talked about very much. Um, more so, but not as much because I would be surprised you still haven't got that dynamic on the typical station setting. Um, I'd like to think it's changed, but um, I'd be surprised if there's still a bit of hesitancy to ask for help. 
It seems like uh, Grenfell moved the needle a little bit. I had one of the firefighters, Ricky Nuttall, on who was, you know, out there actually talking about that very thing and his mental health struggle. And, uh, you know, I, I, I feel like that kind of pulled the, the curtain back a bit. But at the same time, you had all the, you know, politicking and the blame storming that surrounded it, you know, and, and then, you know, I had oh, the, that was mental. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, and then you had, yeah, the, the fire service basically was thrown under the bus and, um, so it kind of took away from that one opportunity. We got to really look at our firefighters as, as human beings and talk about the human element. And then the next thing they're being blamed when they, <laughs> you know, risk life and limb literally to, to facilitate a rescue in what was a, a giant tinderbox. So, um, you know, it was kind of heartbreaking. I had Danny on the, who was a commissioner at the time. And she, you know, again, was, was completely put on the chopping block by her administration. And it was horrendous. I think what happened to Danny Cotton was disgusting. And um, without wanting to go into politics too much, I think it says it all that the residents and survivors of Grenfell Tower do not hold the fire service responsible. They appreciate the fire service and they still have strong bonds now. In fact, you know, I think, you know, they're, um, they're supported by the fire service now, support, you know, people who are, you know, struggling to kind of justify, you know, their actions on that day are probably being supported by the survivor groups, you know, so they're under no illusions what the firefighters did that night. And, uh, you know, I looked at that when it was happening uh, and, uh, you know, it was actually in North Kensington, so uh, ground that I was very familiar with. And um, it's heartbroken, heartbroken to, to see that happen. Um, and I'll, I'll be honest with you, I was surprised by my reaction because, You'd think, you know, having just discussed what we discussed, that, you know, you think, oh, God, you know, I'd want to be there. But my reaction was, I'm glad I wasn't. Because I've moved on. And um, probably at the time, that version of me, you know, when I was a good operator and fit, physically fit, I would have, you know, I would have done my thing, tried to do my best. But having left now and, you know, having been as long out, of the job as I had was in, I looked at it with with the hindsight of an older person, a middle aged person, who isn't who who's aware of you know what can happen physically, and also you know um, a parent and um, having moved on in so many ways without all that sort of um, surrounding the surrounding culture of being in the fire service, and I was actually. Yeah, I was surprised to find myself thinking, thank God I wasn't there, which is, I found quite interesting um, because, you know, you, it's, a, it's a strange thing to admit, but I wouldn't have wanted to do that. I wouldn't have wanted to do that now. Yeah, well, it was interesting with you talking about the fitness and, you know, the pack training as well, BA training. I think one of the things that saved Ricky is he knew that he and his partner had trained well because they made it all the way to the top floor. And I'm forgetting exactly how tall the building was, like 30, 30 plus floors, I think. Yeah. And then so. the, you know, where they were, the heat was so intense that basically there was no chance that anyone was living, but they made it to the outside of the flat. And then they basically realized they only had enough air to get down, not to make entry and search and, and carry someone. So they had to turn around. Um, and I think if, this is something I talk about a lot. If you knew in your heart of hearts that you hadn't trained and you turned around because of that and someone died, you carry that the rest of your life. But the only thing that will save you mentally 
is if you know that you've done everything you can to hold yourself to the higher standard and therefore there's nothing more you could have done and that I think would offer some semblance of uh, you know kind of nullifying that grief and shame a little bit I, I, mean, I think that would probably go some way to at least deep down you know that you were prepared as best as one can be for something outrageous like that and I've seen anything like that since the Blitz in London and my actually I've been thinking about that a lot today that phrase I've used that a little bit when I'm talking about that incident but I've been using it a lot recently since um you know the Ukraine war happened because you know those those poor Ukrainian you know metropolitan fire service you know a couple of weeks ago were busy putting their life at risk being a firefighter now they're in a war zone akin to the blitz um you know my heart goes out to them and uh you know, it's. Um, I just, I just hope they're left to do their jobs as best they can in a very difficult situation. Yeah, it's horrendous. I had a, a conversation with Jason McCarthy yesterday. He was the founder of GoRuck, and he's a Green Beret, former oh, yeah. Green Beret. Um, very, very intelligent guy. Got a very, you know, group of a strong group of very intelligent people around him. So I just asked him, like, without any kind of preloading at all, tell me about it. And you know, he was an interesting perspective, but he said. And this wasn't, I don't think, told in the news, but there were groups of Russian soldiers that thought it was a training exercise. They didn't even know that they were actually invading. You know what I mean? So one thing that I don't see happening there, and I and I love it when you know I'll see a, a video of the Russian people protesting, is again they are demonizing Russia, the entire fucking country, versus how do we get to the point where one tyrant was able to persuade a bunch of people to go in to the Ukraine because the average Russian person probably doesn't give a shit if they're in the Ukraine or not. They just want to get on with their day and make sure their kids have food and, you know, the things that mothers and fathers do. So it breaks my heart that we have an invasion going on, but it breaks my heart as well that we're, you know, demonizing the entire Russian people over, you know, these some are obviously doing this willingly. I'm sure some are doing it unwillingly, but this is all at the whim of, you know, a few people at the top that send their country's children to go murder other children. Yeah, true. And I don't think the answer is to volunteer and then go and kill other people either. I think the volunteer, great, but volunteer and drive a lorry full of medical aid, you know, or volunteer and do first aid. I don't see the point of volunteering and killing other people, especially if they're a conscript army. So I kind of um, have a similar um, aspect to you do. I just, uh, when I see pictures of all the devastation in the towns and building collapses, you know, I think of the firefighters um, and all the uh, volunteers as well. I mean, yeah, I can only imagine. Yeah, it reminds me of Syria. I mean, there, there was some controversy around some of the white helmets for some reason, but you had, you know, that aside, I think you had a core of very, very heroic, you know, rescuers that were going into all these buildings that were not only just bombed, but about to be bombed again to try and pull, you know, men, women, and children out. Yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the majority of people in a role like that are going to be doing it for the right reasons. Um because there's no one watching you doing that. There's no one watching you doing that in Syria. There's no one watching you rescue people in Ukraine doing it because that's your job. And uh, you're there for a reason, you know, that you've uh, defined to be worthy. Um, I think anyone, you do a job where no one's watching you get the glory, that's when you know someone really wants to be there. Absolutely. Well, back to your timeline. 
one place I see a lot of people struggle um, is the transition out of their profession. So, you know, for example, um, I had a very bad back injury, was very fortunate to be able to rehab it with um, what's called foundation training, which is a movement practice founded by, it was started by a, a chiropractor here in the US. But uh, between that chiropractic and, and PT, I was fortunate enough to be able to get back on the job and, and truly be able to function properly. But um you have the injury, you have the transition out now. So you've lost your tribe, you've lost that kind of sense of purpose. You, A lot of us kind of identify as the firefighter. What was that journey out like for you physically and mentally? Mentally, it was grim, grim. Um, yeah, lost again. Uh, which, you know, having got to that point where, you know, I was, you know, a good operator and, and you know, had expertise in 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 quite a specific niche set of skills sound like Liam Nielsen there (laughs) 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 Um, but it is niche and it's a very specific set of skills and if you're not doing it what are you going to do it's not every day you come across a burning house in the street you know it's like okay what do you do as a city um yeah I, I was lost and um, but I was in pain as well, you know, and I was really struggling um, because I was on gabapentin and morphine at one point, which um, just pl- played tricks on your mind, you know. I was a bit, I was, I was lost in all sorts of, of ways. And um, then I had some physical therapy, some osteop- osteopathic therapy in particular, and met a really good guy um, who, um, who actually I knew him from the master's degree I'd done. And so I, cause he's, I trusted him. I went to see him for some advice and therapy and, um, he as an osteopath gave me my first bit of insight into how he looked at the body, which was like a holistic all over approach. Um, which really resonated with me at the time. And I thought, you know what, I'm still relatively young. Um, I'm now a bit more academically confident. Um, and so I applied for an osteo school. Um, which is a university in London um, called the British School of I was called the British School of Osteopathy, and I went there on a on a five year degree course. And uh, I wouldn't say I found my tribe again. And you know, obviously, five years is a long time. So again, it was reminiscent of just trying to keep up with all the people who've gone through the classical education system. You know, GCSE, A level degree, and then this um, clinical training. But I loved it actually because what I found was interesting is because I was um, I was at a disadvantage academically with confidence uh, because of the dyslexia as well. You have to learn so much, you have to memorize so much, and I, I did it by doing mind maps, which um, a lot of dyslexic people try uh, and get on with quite well. But it means you have to draw maps, pictorial representations of a word, which sound when you say what you see, it sounds like a word, which then and that imprints in a certain way that and so I had to memorize basically the entire human body <laughs> and nervous system and muscles. And, you know, that's how I learned that initially anyway, all the joints and the attachments of muscles. Um, but I, but the advantage I had was having served as a firefighter because I had the ability to talk to patients. I had the ability to talk to people who were in pain. That's talk to people who had an injury we're panicking. 
you know, this is what we do. So that skill set actually did find a place. That particular part of the skill set or that experience where you are able to deal with someone who's under pressure um, and then kind of normalize it for them and say, this is what we're going to do. So I found that quite interesting. And then I, I met some great people, you know, um, academically, some people who and had the opportunity to read in this vast library they've got of everything, any book ever written about pain every book ever written about back injury um and now i threw myself into it um, um this is at the same time as having a young family as well i might add so let's not forget the pressures that puts on <laughs> it's trying to is actually trying to um work my way through that um but uh, you know eventually i did um i was still in a great deal of pain though um and not able whenever i tried to revisit anything meaningful in terms of exercise I couldn't do it you know I, I would have to spend a long time stretching um, and mobilizing just to kind of get through the day so there's no way there's no way back to any sort of uniform um, at all um, so having thrown myself into how I get through this I, I was doing as much reading as I could around pain and uh, novel management how do we you know non-pharmacological pain management you know so i've done the pharmacological pain management it didn't work you know i had at this point a few years on about three years four years after the injury i had significant um nerve root irritation still um what happens when you have a disc that bulges out imagine a donut and the jam comes out and if there happens to be a nerve near that the jam comes out and sticks on the nerve and it's like plasticine you if you press your thumbprint on that plasticine take your thumbprint away so the disc or matter absorbs back into the body, but that print is left. So I was left with neurological pain. I was left with historic neurological pain, which the reason for that pain was no longer there. The disc had rescinded and shrunk and destabilized my spinal joints. But the actual nerve root pain, which is a thing that that is sickening, it... it, it um, Imagine the worst toothache you've ever had, but it goes right down your leg and it stops you moving. Um, you know, so that's what I was dealing with four years on, and started doing a lot of research into phantom limb pain um, and neuro neurological pain, oversensitization of pain pathways, looking at all the descending ascending pathways, and I'm trying to understand what the nervous system is, which is basically, you know, the search for human consciousness, really, isn't it? You know, what is this? You know, why am I? Why am I? Why am I feeling this? you start delving deeper and deeper and deeper into um, you know, why you particularly are affected. And, and I was finding that actually it was a positive thing to do because I was able to find some um, gift out of what I was going through because I was able to, able to help other people um, eventually. You know, as soon as I was saying, well, you know, this, you know, I'm, I still do have issues, but I, I still have, you know, I've managed to start to move again. And I was actually, helping a lot of people with the benefit of my experience, which gives it value. Um, and I think that often helps in the process, but the pain was still there, man. I mean, anyone who says, oh, you know, if you can find a reason for the pain and discomfort you go through, it kind of gives it meaning. Yeah, it gives it meaning, but you might still be in pain though, right? That means I still can't go running. I still can't do any lifting. And that's pretty fucking shit because that's defined me for the first 20 years of my adult life. Um, so I went on this deep dive into specifically um, phantom limb pain, and which is an unhelpful name. 
phantom limb pain, isn't it? Because it kind of gives the impression of it being um, etherical or mystical or, or not real. But it is. And I started looking into movement-based practice, like yourself, and I started um, thinking about um, how um, the nervous system, and as I was alluding to, that the pain pathways in particular often define us. I started to read research that was talking along the lines that the amount of pain a person feels is directly attributable to their perceived um, happiness and their satisfaction with their lives at that time. So then started looking at things, the things that psychotherapists are doing around um, um, PTSD and um, found a therapy called EMDR, which, which uh, eye movement desensitization and retraining, which, 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 is, um, which was actually started by a psychotherapist who was American called Shapiro in, uh, some time ago now. And um, they recognized that eye movement in some way can shift an unhelpful um, traumatic memory into another part of your memory, which makes it slightly less traumatic to think about. It's still there, but it's not quite so spiky to think about it. And it was purely because she'd gone out for a walk one day feeling quite depressed and came back feeling discernibly better. She was also suffering um, some depression, uh, but she then realized it was a windy day and her eyes had been drawn to the tops of the trees doing that. And that movement, the eye movement, in some way, they've proven now, they still, this is fascinating because they still don't know what the process is. Why does it, does it? Not definitively, even with functional MRI, we still don't know exactly why, but it does. It, it helps a lot of people with PTSD. And then I started reading back right back into that initial discovery of this, where they were talking, they would help people with anxiety as well. And also they were wondering whether they can help people with pain. And I think, bingo, okay, let's try this. This is right up my street because I'm not a psychotherapist. I can start prescribing um, movement to people who are in a similar position to I was five years ago. And um, started working with people with, with neuralgic pain, with nerve root irritation, from a historical injury. The injury is now gone, but the nerve root is still inflamed. And I started to find that by doing cross-hemispheric movement prescriptions, specifically around where I felt that person had had their nervous system imprinted on, um, I was able to, you can never get rid of it, but you can do is you can build a road around it by a movement. And there's a lot of people out there doing mirror box therapy. There's a lot of people out there doing EMDR therapy, but there's a lot of people out there using movement now as um, a prescriptor, um, specifically for the nervous system. And, you know, I was lucky enough to, to do a bit of writing around this as well, where I talked about some case histories where I was um, specifically prescribing neural stimulating movement to help people with long-term neuralgia, neuralgia and, and nerve root irritation symptoms. Um, and also things called focal dystonia, which can... Um, if someone practices and over-practices sometimes, instead of becoming concise and detailed with fine control, sometimes it blurs the part of the brain that gives that you want to actually be more controlled. And so a horn player or a football player or sports people or musician typically would get this if they've done too many thousands of hours and we don't understand why. And so I was helping people like that to retrain back 
And that was fascinating because when you think about the nervous system, um, in the front, in, in the nervous system, there's something called the sensory homunculus, which is basically, if you imagine a pictorial representation of us in our brains, and we prioritize on an evolutionary basis, our tongues, our eyes, our hands, because they've got more sensory organs in them. So on that representation in the, the cortex, they're highly, highly innovated. Um, but if something goes wrong with the fingers or the lips or the eyes, then you're in trouble. And what I found was by using all the research done before, if you could prescribe movement to the neighboring part of that homunculus, that representation, then you can start to show the brain that everything is well, everything is all right. That's why if someone's injured as a sports person, the sooner they can start visualizing, the sooner they can start thinking about um, pain-free movement, even if they're in a cast in a bed, the better, because you need to keep those channels open. And started to do a lot of reading. There are people, um, especially around sport at that time, um, an American um, um, called um, Tim Martinez, who was an American football coach, um, who used to be one of the forerunners of, he used to take his athletes and slow them down before he sped them up because he knew that the neural control element is everything for control. Um, and um, there's a few other names that will come to me, but there's a few other people that were really inspirational to me. A few books I read that kind of confirmed what I was finding. Um, there's a book called um, The Brain That Changes Itself by Norman Doidge, which is a game-changing book. Um, and I'd recommend anyone who um, is interested in human performance, pain management, stress management, to read that book um, because it was life-changing for me. But going back to this, my experience, I started to take more and more and more of that and work more and more with exercise prescription, movement prescription with people, because at that point, I was very much of the, the mindset that if we can get people, if we can get the primitive part of the brain, which is the bit that generates and responds to stimulus and gives us pain and helps us perceive where pain is, the primitive part of the brain is not a good listener. So the primitive part of the brain does not do well to, to say, David, there's no reason why your pain is still there. Get better. Well, the pain was still there. And I find that frustrating. So I'm telling me that. But what the primitive part of the brain responds well to is other primal aspects of function. Now, you can't ask someone to go out, have a fight, have sex, because that's primal, right? And that will keep your pain better. But what you can do is prescribe movement because we are a movement-based organism. You know, we've evolved to move. That's what's made us who we are. We've moved. You know, that's what's distinguished us as human beings. We've, we've been able to move. And movement is a primal ascending message that the nervous system, if you get it right, if the holy grail is to prescribe movement, which ascends messages up to the brain without triggering pain or anxiety. So if you can do that, then eventually the brain will eventually say, oh, and after a few years sometimes, but even so it can say, okay, actually I see that you're moving all the time. And what was previously triggering a response in that part, that formerly injured spot, now I'm not going to do that so much. I might still do it a bit, but I'm not going to do it as much because you show me that everything is well, everything is okay. And that's why I find mirror box therapy quite interesting because you know, you've got an injured left leg 
put a mirror over it and then move your right leg and your brain will see the left leg moving but you've not got any pain and eventually you know simple simple things like that um can be profound but only after hours and hours and hours and hours of practice well what's interesting is i've obviously had a lot of people talk about emdr on here with the, the mental health side but there have been a few people some deliberately some you know kind of inadvertently discussing bilateral physical movement and then realizing that it was helping their mental health so one one example is uh, uh, Tom Hewitt, who is a an Englishman, but he has a thing called um, Surface Not Street Children in South Africa. And they take these kids, first they teach them to swim, because the crazy thing is they're right by the ocean. But um, they were told, I believe, from you know some of our European ancestors that the oceans were full of monsters and don't go in there, they'll eat you. Um, and so they, they get their confidence in the water, then they actually you know, ultimately are surfing. So you think about the paddling element, left, right, left, right. And then at the end of that, they do a therapy session on the beach after they've had movement. Another person was talking about, you know, running is therapeutic. Another one was, uh, I think it was kayaking. So again, left, right, left, right with, with the, the limbs. And so, you know, whether it's pain, whether it's transitioning memories from an acute kind of, you know, short term element of the brain to a more long term element, that, you know, that bilateral movement does seem to, I mean, it, it, it's, so many people are seeing that observation, and I think it's it's definitely a true a truth that people are acknowledging now. Yeah, that, yeah, that's fascinating. I, I, there is a mechanism. I think it's a forgotten, helpful neurological mechanism which we have inside all of us. It works for EMDR therapy, but we don't know why. But it does work, and it also works, I believe, for um, uh, body movement. So. By bihemispheric, bilateral stimulation of both hemispheres, cross crawl. You know, you know the commando crawl, cross crawl, um, swimming as you say, climbing. But actually, I would prescribe. So I, I call it a move to improve the move to improve method, where I would prescribe um, for a specific. You know, I would do a history, uh, do take the history of someone, and then I can potentially examine them and work out where exactly, at which part of your descending and ascending path pathways, um, pain pathways, or I have to do that backwards, um, it has been injured or defacilitated or facilitated. And from that, I would prescribe um, some bihemispheric cross-hemispheric movement. But I'd always combine it with um, something specific to the goal that they've got and keep it in the positive sense. So it wasn't, wasn't therapeutic, therapy, talking therapy, but... I would prescribe um, some simple exercises combined with visualization to an end task. And I found that to be um, very beneficial and certainly they have as well. And, you know, more and more people, as you say, using movement prescription, not just eye movement description, because I think we've all realized that if eye movement works, then why wouldn't the more global body movement work? And in fact, it works, I think, really well for pain and for conditioning and for prehabilitation, so pain and injury prevention. Um, if we can combine that in when we're working with people who want to have longevity of a career or just healthy aging, actually, you know, um, which is actually, ultimately that's where my journey has taken me is now I'm working more. I'm not, I am working, I'm, I'm still in clinic, you know, a couple of times a day, um, a couple of times a week, 
but I'm I'm now doing more kind of global stuff, which is more about to do with longevity. So when I say global, I mean as in the world, I mean more I'm trying to apply the lessons we learn from our tactical experience of functional fitness, experience of working in clinic, and that intersection where this can be a real benefit to an aging population now. Because the thing that an aging population aren't doing generally is uh, doing strength training. And I think, you know, I think we touched upon in one of our previous chats, James, where, you know, I was saying that the, 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 the evidence coming out of COVID was that people who had more lean skeletal muscle tissue did better. And there was evidence to suggest that, um, well, we all know, we all see probably research every day that says, you know, Harvard University confirms that um, exercise drops your rate of, you know, all form cancers by 20% and blah, blah, blah. So we know that exercise is good, but in, in particular, skeletal muscle acts as an immune organ not just as a mover of, of our bodies, um, but as an immune organ. And that was mind-blowing for me. when I, so it, it, made, it made you realize this is why people do better if they exercise. But if you dig down into it, it also acts as an absorber of information, like a sponge of information. When we have it, we all have information. You know, normal, that's normal. We all have information every day that our body deals with. And, you know, I went on after... Um, just working in clinic and decided to, I worked in sports and I worked in pain and all sorts of things. But what I was really, you know, you know, developed that method, but then worked to consult with an arthritis charity as well, because I found in working with an organization like that, I can get my, get that, those experiences out to a wider audience, hopefully as well. And I think looking at, you know, that, element of my life has been about trying to encourage older people and middle-aged people to do more strength training because a stronger joint is a braced joint which means you have less pain in that joint even with arthritis in it you you should still do strength training of sorts you can do isometric stuff or you can do whatever but you do should do something and in working around those various projects i've been working with it's been um the moment for me was during the pandemic when, I was, when, when you know, the government was saying we've got an aging population, we're not exercising enough, what can we do in the, in the charity sector to try and organise more people exercising? And um, My take on it was that we need to focus people's minds away from um, just aerobic exercise and more to resistance training. Because if you could choose one thing, I would choose resistance training for the rest of my life to maintain that skeletal um, that musculoskeletal tissue for immunity as much as anything else. But there's a, there's a great battle going on with that because um, I think strength training is like a pension in that you, the earlier you start strength training, I'm not talking about adolescence and pre-adolescence, but the earlier as an adult you start, the better. If you leave it too late, you're not going to have much to retire on. And um, you need to start and then maintain it you've got to get on that hamster wheel and you've got to maintain it because without it, um, you can take up triathlon when you retire. You can take up tennis, rambling, you know, walking out here is a big thing. People take up um, swimming and cycling. 
put on lycra and out they go every weekend um and that's great and you're going to probably have a a good older age but i always think what would it have been if you'd have done some sessions in um resistance training as well as that because actually research has come out now to say that doing all those aerobic type stuff isn't necessarily going to protect you from frailty in older age frailty fractures um sarcopenia which is the big thing really i think that on chance and I bring some of those lessons into that fight against um, sarcopenia. I'm trying to get as many middle-aged and older people doing resistance training as I can. Well, when you said about cycling, I was thinking about obviously the osteoporosis element. I remember I went to, I did sports science at University of North London. I think it's Metropolitan University now. Um, and I remember one slide, I can still see it in my head, and it was the bone density of a cyclist. And the only place that they actually show that their bones were denser was in the wrist where they were holding the weight of their their body as they were cycling and so it's sad because you know when you think about like you said the aerobic element when you think of osteoporosis what are all our you know commercials tell us oh drink milk you know have this vitamin d supplement this calcium supplement and that's ultimately such misinformation you know firstly i don't think milk's a great source of calcium i think it does put you in you know an acidic state and um so obviously there's some much better sources leafy greens etc but it's the impact you know and so it goes back to that resistance training and i remember seeing a show in the uk years and years and years ago and even though the weights used were different. They showed there was the same linear improvement of an 18-year-old that started weight training as there was with an 80-year-old. So creating that that impact training, that resistance training is absolutely, you know, important not only for osteoporosis, but for the, the health of the joints as well. And it, and it blows me away as I'm 48 now that that still isn't the main message for the regular people out there. Yeah, yeah. I think the problem is that it's, it, it does get confusing when you start to look at um, the reasons why um, people do better if they exercise. We have, to, we have to presume an implicit relationship between staying strong and healthy aging because to date there haven't been any kind of um, absolutely gold standard. This is why. We have to make a lot of assumptions. And in science, that, that isn't helpful. Um, but even the chief medical officer over here is now saying, you know, more emphasis should be put on strength training. Um, the academic literature is there in part, you know, people who have greater grip strength in, uh, at 50 go on to be healthier at 70. But actually the jump between the two relationships doesn't always follow because what if they, they're just, um, you know, they've inherited that grip strength. We, do, we don't know exactly what the biological process was until I think recently where we're talking about that inflammatory thing. It's not just about the ability to move and choose to do things like um, cycling, which are going to be good for your cardio or swimming, you know, or whatever is running. Because in my mind, unless you've got the base of the pyramid, which is strength, you're not going to be able to choose to do any of the other things. And that's the problem. People who do age well, and haven't done strength training, I often think, I wonder whether you would have had another four or five years had you done that, had you prioritized resistance training as well, because obviously you're genetically gifted and um, genetically predisposed to live a long time. 
um, I wonder what their quality of life would have been like if they'd have done that resistance training. And that's whoever I meet now, whatever age they're at in clinic or when I'm working with them one-on-one, um, that's my message to them, especially middle-aged. Because middle-aged is the, is the ultimate time. If you haven't, then get on that hamster wheel and start training. Start looking at what your body responds to. Um, because if I can do it, um, then, then anyone can do it, you know, because I still manage my, my pain on a, on a, on a daily, uh, a, a daily basis. You know, I have to chop and change and periodize my training around me. You know, I can't just look at a off the shelf program and I don't think anyone else should personally. I think off the shelf programs can, can give you, um, the framework, but you've got to be your own PT. You've got to be your own expert because only, you know, how you feel in your body. And I think the thing for me, when you look at the, the, uh, uh, the aging process, and I think, I don't know about you, mate, but when you get to middle age, you start to think about it. I mean, I do. I start to think about it now. You know, you're carrying injuries. So I want to keep going. How am I going to do that? Um, I think you've just got to keep searching. Um, you know, I read something only a few days ago, a really good quality academic paper came out, and it, it was talking about um, strength snacking which I thought was quite an interesting phrase talking about how, you know, we were probably brought up on two to three times a week, you know, push, pull, um, upper body, lower body, you know, always balance that with this. Um, and these guys were just saying, just don't get too wrapped up in it. As long as you're doing something, you know, you can come in, you can do 10 minutes one day, do five minutes the next, then have a day off and do a minute one day. As long as you're doing something to keep those muscle groups working against resistance then you're going to get a benefit and i think that's quite useful because it takes the pressure off and it gives you permission just say i've just got five minutes i'm gonna do a few press-ups against the wall or i've got some bands here i'm going to do a couple of minutes here it all adds up ultimately um to being a benefit to that resistance your body needs resistance to push or pull against and it's our jobs to find opportunities to do that either in the gym or in you know, the, the, the functional environment, but not too much. Again, because a paradox, unfortunately, is that, you know, why aren't builders, you know, the fittest, healthiest, older people you ever see in life? It's because they've had too much. You know, they do that every day. You know, they don't have that dose-response relationship and then rest. They go up and they grind every day for 12 hours a day and they end up having arthritis at an early onset or they end up having pain. So one must always have in mind enough time to rest as well. But I find that yeah, I'm still learning. You know, I, I learned the other day that as we age, muscles power decreases eight times faster than muscle mass decreases. And when you think about why that might be, I mean, it's, it's a real interesting debate. But my take on that is that it's the neural element again, the, the neural the neuro activation and neuromuscular systems that we lay down by repetitive actions in training um, are the engine rooms of strength. Because we all know strength and speed equals power. And that is one of the first things to go as we age or if we're injured. And I found it fascinating that it's eight times faster. That terrified me. Um, I think some people think that, you know, getting strong is a bit like learning a language. That once you've learned it, you have to keep practicing it to keep fluent in that. And I think that fluency comes from 
the myelination of our nerves, of our nerve sheaths, that if we practice enough, it becomes a main pathway of, um, of ease uh, and it becomes fluent. But when we stop, it might still be there, but um, it ages quickly. So um, that's why, you know, when I'm working with people now, I'm, I'm, telling, I'm telling people you, almost, you must always have a power element, a speed element in whatever you're doing, even if it's just own body weight stuff. Especially as we age, we must always incorporate a periodized session in part of your, your global, you know, if you look at a month ahead, you must always look at doing a power session regularly because it's that is really feeding into the nervous system which is i think the link personally between uh, brain and body you know the the between personality and function the nervous system is the conduit so by communicating with the nervous system and by you know by um by actually doing exercise that is primarily focused on power um you're literally activating in a different way. So, so, it, so it's a different way of training. And I think if we don't do that, and we just stick to what we, we've always done, we might end up on the wrong side of aging as well. So it's not as simple as just, I'm going to go to the gym. I'm good. Thanks very much. I'm good. We've got to always be processing and, and, and adapting to different speeds even, not just different weights. Now you talked about arthritis as well, and you know, sp- ironically, you talk about people being diligent in their gym practice. I've got a lot of people in my CrossFit gym who, kudos to them, show up, you know, three, four times a week, and I've watched them get, you know, their body composition has got worse and worse and worse. So obviously, there's the nutrition element that is not on point. When I hear people talk about arthritis, is again a very defeatist lens that people have like well if you got it well that's it you know i guess i'm gonna be you know this way forever which i have seen in myself i disagree completely the foundation training absolutely you know helped with my back i'm working on my knees now with uh i think called atg program the guy um is known as the knees over toes guy and again it's just like you talked about you know building that resilience and that that bracing around the knee joint that i obviously lost after i had meniscus snipped off um so with, through an osteopath lens, you know what are some of the factors that contribute to arthritis, and how many of them are actually reversible if you put the time in? Arthritis, osteoarthritis isn't reversible per se. The the damage in the cartilage is is that, um, but the things that are reversible are some of the reasons maybe leading to it. Um, so certain. In terms of injury, if you're a sports person or if you're an active person, if you've had a history of injury, that can sometimes lead to arthritis in later life. Um, but arthritis is a change in the articular cartilage. And if you were to, if you were to MRI majority of people over 55, they would have changes in articular cartilage and therefore you could give them officially a diagnosis of, of arthritis. Um, sometimes it's unclear what's caused it. But often it's with a history of um, injury or abnormal gait can sometimes you cause adverse wearing on one side more than the other. <clears throat> There's a poorly understood genetic predisposition as well. But I would always say that whoever I would have worked with, um, including myself in this, in that if you do um, take the time to thoroughly condition the joint that's affected, you will always have a better outcome. 
Now, if we're talking about people who are bone on bone, that's a different conversation. That's a conversation more that's more of a surgical um, medical intervention. But even then, that prosthetic joint that they sometimes put in are only as good as the muscles around them and only as good as the movement you have elsewhere. So, I mean, I think my own journey in, in regards to, you know, what to do with, um, with arthritis, I mean, similarly, I'm affected in my knee because, um, because of the, 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 the long-term leg pain that I had uh, from the back. Um, and I found that working on posterior chain, working on co-contraction, um, um, and working on very slow mastery of specific movements, both for me and for my patients and clients, has had some really beneficial um, effects. So when I talk about slow mastery, I always work with people with the three phases, depending on where you are, but generally speaking, three phases. So the first phase would be, we're going to slow things down here. If you're worried about having joint pain later, if you're, if you're a sports person and you're worried about the end of your career, or if you're just the, the average person who comes to see me to consult about healthy aging, um, but they want to keep doing certain sports activities, I slow them down. And uh, the first thing is just to break down some key components of what their goal may be. And the slowing down identifies to me where some of the weaknesses are, because you know yourself, gravity and speed, you can get away with murder. But if you take the gravity technique and speed out of the movement um, and just look at the basic human movement, it tells you a lot about where the weaknesses are. <coughs> So that's the first phase. And then the second phase would be um, looking at adding an element into that movement of co-contraction or posterior chain. So co-contraction being the ability to brace all sides of the joint and make it stiff. So you basically would use bands and you'd add, you'd add an element of um, sometimes you can just, instead of using a gym floor, you can use um, a gym mat. To, to add an element of different sort of um, impacts if you're dealing with a, with a sports person. But you also um, add an element of cross-hemispheric movement as well in stage two. And then in stage three, you would then start to then build up the intensity and potentially only then the speed once you're convinced they have control. Because I think the majority of injuries happen <clears throat> um, when there's a lack of control in terms of athletic and tactical fitness specifically. Um, sorry, we're on a bit of a side road there. I didn't want to talk about arthritis, but, but I think the way I would treat arthritis is, is to apply the same lessons from that tactical elite fitness in that if you go through those stages, then you can come up with a much stiffer, stiff in a good way, like a, a joint that can move and respond to um situations it doesn't isn't normally finding itself in so a sports person you know would go to kick a soccer ball and then the soccer ball bobbles out the way the last time and then you shank it and that's when you know you get an acl or a pcl ligament damage and um you know if you've done some work potentially to work on the eccentric capacity of that joint you've got more chance of slowing that shank down and not relying upon that passive um, subsystem, which is the soft tissue of the knee and the ligament. So that communication between the passive subsystem of the knee and then your nervous system, all in a split second, tries to slow you down. And that comes down to how K 
can you how much control do you have in slowing down that eccentric lengthening of the knee so your hamstring eccentric work on the hamstring <clears throat> but when you break it down into doing lots of work like that in my experience you can avoid firstly a lot of the non-impact injuries that we see a lot in sport where just someone's hamstring or Achilles goes but equally with someone with an arthritic joint they respond so phenomenally well to lots of eccentric posterior chain co-contraction type stuff so yeah and I think it comes down again the neurology of movement you know that intersection between brain and body the neurology of it if we work on the neurology via mindfulness via meditation by visualization as well that can be incredibly useful in visualizing movement before we do it and a lot of elite people do that we know that you see people in elite sports doing that and we should 100 cherry pick that stuff from elite sports and drop it into the the general population because it works there's a really interesting thing called mirror neurons where if you watch a sport or activity if you have an experience where you're really engrossed in a movie or something, you're kind of there, you feel like you're there. It's because your mirror neurons are firing and you are kind of there neurologically. And so that's why visualization is so, so useful, especially visualizing pain-free, uh, perfect function, and perfect technique in movement, even if you can't physically do it yet, because you're laying down that myelination in your nervous system to be able to do that when the opportunity arises, even if it's in a few years' time. One more thing I want to ask you and then go to some closing questions. I know we've been chatting for almost two hours now, um, but it's very important, especially coming from the world of osteopathy. It's a lot more holistic than some modern medicine practitioners. A huge, huge common denominator in a lot of these conversations has been the impact of sleep deprivation on, you know, not so much the general population, but specifically the tactical population, doctors, nurses, the, the shift workers of the world. And when you look at, you know, you, me, and, and all our, you know, men and women to the side of us that first showed up as young firefighters, I'm assuming that most drill grounds would be, you know, a bunch of very mentally and physically fit young people. And yet you look at the, it, the occurrence of musculoskeletal injuries on top of obviously mental health and obesity and all these other elements. But, you know, the, the, the high occurrence and then you go to the sporting community and you learn about the importance of rest and recovery and sleep and how that allows us to process thoughts how it allows our muscles and, and ligaments and tendons to repair then you look back at our profession and go well it's no wonder that we're getting hurt all the time and then as you talk about now take the neural element as well that actual motor skill element and those nerves are being broken down and, and de demyelinated forgot that word right by the sleep deprivation. I mean, all those factors in, you know, to, to kind of underlining that. So talk to me about the importance of sleep and then, you know, what is happening to our sleep deprived, you know, responders out there? Oh man, I think it's, uh, that's a great question. And when we're sleep deprived, we everything, nothing works. I mean, your, your parasympathetic nervous system which is a thing that's meant to kick in when we're sleeping, you know, the, the, um, it re re basically replenishes and revives every cell in the body. It helps you excrete and uh, excrete waste and digest nutrients. Our brains in particular, you know, 
um, that's the time when, you know, when we're going to REM sleep in particular, when, um, you know, our brains are really, um, and in fact, there's an interesting parallel with REM sleep and cross-hemispheric or EMDR, eye movement. REM sleep is very important in, uh, you know, in um, aging, in pain, in depression, because if you take REM sleep or deep sleep away, you're more prevalent to get all of those things. And I find it interesting that sleep and in particular rapid eye movement is one of the really beneficial things for a human being, which if we don't get, we start falling apart, right? So again, it's another reason why movement that gives us that during the day at least gives us something. This is why yoga and things like meditation and, you know, Tai Chi where, or martial arts where we are crossing the midline a lot is so fabulous for us. But to go back to what you're saying, if we're not sleeping, we're not really able to live the next day as well as we can because we're still in a, 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 a case of breakdown. You know, we're, literally everything hasn't replenished. That horrible sinking feeling on night duties, you know, where the bell goes and that horrible sinking feeling in your stomach and you're up all night into the next day, um, sometimes grinding it out. And, you know, you do it the next night as well, sometimes. I don't know what the answer is to that. I mean, I think as an as a emergency service worker, I think that we should be given training in this. I think that, I think that we should be given training in that. Um, I think as one of your other guests I heard, who was a strength conditioning uh, guy and a firefighter, you know, if you've had a heavy night duty, that's not the time to go and crush it in the gym. I agree. That's the time to go and, you know, have a really, really good meal, a healthy meal, you know, um, replenish, hydrate, meditate do some gentle exercise stretch do some yoga um because not only does your brain not recover but um your injuries won't recover and i think the other thing that struck me when you were saying that i had a great recruit training you know i had a really functional training but no one no one said anything about health and there was not health element now it might have changed now i don't know about in the u.s and I hope that there is some input now about taking care of yourself, you know, nutrition. But, you know, the thought of, you know, having a foam roller, you know, and doing foam rolling and, you know, even when you're on duty, you know, trying to do some meditation or yoga on duty even, um, you know, looking really carefully at what you eat when you're on duty um, would be in some way pushing back against that sleep deprivation, but not in all ways. So whilst we still answer bells and, you know, respond in the middle of the night, um, I think that is a challenge. And all we can do as individuals is have that stuff as good as we can get it. Because otherwise you are looking at, I think, um, not the best aging process as possible. I think potentially, you know, you're looking at more rapid aging than, than, than we would like to think. Yeah, and I think one of the... The things that I see is sadly, especially here in the US, you know, the work week of a responder is often far longer than a work week of a civilian. So it's insanity. And the only, the only solution that I see is for a reprogramming of philosophy. And if, you know, to me, elim eliminate as much shift work as you can. Like no one's stuff is so important that it needs to be made in a factory through the night, you know what I mean? Especially with, with the automization and robotics and things now. But the few careers that we need, whether it's pilots or, you know, like hospital staff or whatever, that that's a different kind of section of work week. And you work them a lot less and you give them the rest and recovery between their shifts so they can get as close to normal as possible. 
not the opposite like we see especially the nhs this last couple of years like oh we haven't got any beds or staffing for you but we're all going to get out and fucking clap that'll help so good luck yeah, when that. something goes wrong when something goes wrong as well you know because you've got human error there so when something goes wrong what do they expect man i mean you're a human being you're not a robot i think you're right i think you know the easy answer is employ more of us and then have the ability to give you more time off in between shifts give you more leave um um, but all the other things as well, educate, educate individuals so they can make important choices um, about how to spend their downtime. That's the thing, the interesting thing about aging, isn't it? You know, we've, you know, it's work hard, play hard, grind it. And as we age as well, I think now being savvy, you know, when we, when we, you know, choose, knowing when to train, knowing your body, you know, not recognizing that, you know, you're middle aged, um, but being clever, learn your lessons and then still, grind it, but then choose the optimal time to do it. That's the thing. Not just keep doing it, you know, as if you're 18 still. <laughs> uh, yeah. Absolutely. I think that's the thing is it's a double edged conversation. We've got to have both of those. It's, you know, you can't, you can't have time off and go work a night shift at a hospital to make extra money. You know, that just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So you've got to own your own part-time jobs. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah now you can have true. a part-time job, but go hang drywall for eight hours. You'll be exhausted and sleep like a baby. But don't go sign up for something that's going to keep you awake yet another night. <sighs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. True. It would be nice to see. Be nice to see um, just globally the fire service um, or fire services investing a bit more, not just in occupational health that picks you up when you're injured, but you know more preventative stuff. The nature of it is that we're emergency service. So, you know, I think, you know, maybe that would take some time <laughs> to get their heads around, but that's where it needs to be, I'm sure. Absolutely. Well, I want to transition to some closing questions. So I'm going to be mindful of your time. The first one I love to ask, is there a book, you know, you mentioned one, um, The Brain That Changes Itself. Are there any other books that you recommend to people that can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated? Um, in terms of pain, pain management, which I think is relevant to everyone. Um, there's a great book called um, Explain Pain. And it's by an Australian professor of physiotherapy called Lorimer Mosley and David Butler. And it's a really fabulous book. And I'd also recommend people um, look at, there aren't any books, but there's a few um, recordings of um uh lectures that he gave a guy called bill knowles who's an american um athletic trainer and he's pretty much uh pretty legendary within physiotherapy and osteopathy worlds in terms of sports rehabilitation but a lot of the way that he works in terms of co-contraction and posterior chain this guy was well beyond his you know he was, he was a trailblazer he's still working um, um, and um, his work and his approach to all the things you've been talking about today are, are well worth a look as well. Um, but yeah, I think the, my starting point would be um, the brain that changes itself because it's a nice paperback. It's very accessible, really, really well researched as well. Beautiful. Now, what about films or documentaries? Any of those that you love to talk about, recommend? In what in what context? It could either be a favorite film or it can be an actual documentary, but I mean e- either or. 
Oh, that's a great question. Documentary. Do you know what? I think it's a bit of both. There's um, there's a film called The Alpinist, uh, which, you know, I've done a bit of climbing over the years, a bit of mountaineering over the years, and um, I'm not going to say too much about it, but I think just watch it because, you know, from the first 10 seconds, you're on the edge of your seat and um, just watch it. It's uh, it, it for me. It just kind of defines uh, you know some of the best things in human uh, human performance and just in humans full stop. Really interesting movie. It's an incredible film. I watched it. One of the guests recommended it, and um, they described it perfectly. Like, an, an, uh, excuse me, Alex Honnold has heroes, and and obviously the subject of the Alpinist is is his hero. So, you know, if if a guy that you know did free solo looks up to this climber, I mean, that, <laughs> that says it all. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, but uh, yeah, I don't give too much away about it because whoever uh, watches it, but I mean, uh, humbling, absolutely, yeah. and true, yeah. true, like mastery. You know, I think that's that's the thing. And with Alex and with I, I forget the gentleman's name now, which is embarrassing, but you you see just a complete immersion into their craft and an ownership of every other element. And you can apply that to the fire service, to the strength and conditioning world, to injury recovery, you know, whatever it is, like when you remove all those distractions and you have that singular focus, you can achieve anything. True. It's that pursuit of perfection when no one else is looking is what, is what, um, what touched me. That moved me because that means that it's real. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he, he clearly was deliberate in staying away from the camera to the point where yeah, which, <laughs> he had a crew that, that couldn't find him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That, it's so interesting. But yeah, yeah. Uh, Brilliant. All right. Well, the next question, is there a person you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, mil- military and associated professions of the world? Norman Deutsch. Yeah, or Laura Mosley. If you want to talk about pain and how to understand the nervous system, um, yeah, I would go there. Yeah, definitely. I, I would love to see that. So make that happen. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, brilliant. I have to read the book first, though. Um, yeah, sure. So the last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you and your work, um, what do you do to decompress? What do you decompress? I, I like yourself, have dog, um, which is, uh, I find dogs um, just like the best company. Um, I am very, I, I like to think I have enough time to decompress. So, you know, we, I've just moved house and so live in the middle of nowhere. So I just enjoy being outside, you know, working with, you know, um, in the garden or in the woods. I do a lot of training still, um, but it changes constantly with how I feel. Um, I do my resistance training and my um, training in such a way that I don't compress the spine, but I still manage to keep right fit. So I also love being in mountains and, um, you know, I, I love to be in the great outdoors, really, if I was going to be truly decompressed. Um, so anything active and outdoors, you'll find me doing. Beautiful. One thing I didn't ask you, I just want to uh, slide this in quickly. You mentioned about being on gabapentin and morphine. What was that weaning process? What What did you find worked to allow you to bridge that and start removing those from your daily kind of uh, consumption? 
I've been on it twice. Um, I've had two periods on it. And the first time I came off cold turkey, um, and that was that was brutal and not very effective. Um, then I then st- took a bit of advice instead of just sort of thinking I was an expert on it, and then came off it over the course of about um, six months. But that was only possible due to some of the movement-based stuff that I described starting to work. So I didn't start that until about two years. So I was on, you know, two years is a long time. Long time. I know other people have, and especially it depends also also where you live, what part of the world you live, but there are options open to you to come off of that. Um, but, you know, I think pharmacological opioid-based stuff um, is, is dangerous. Uh, that's a whole nother, whole nother thing I know, but it just took time, but it, it, but it did work. And now I don't take anything, you know, I'm not on anything. Um, you know, my drug of choice is, is, uh, resistance training, um, but not in a classical way. So I've developed ways of moving and use of bands and the kind of neurological cross hemispheric stuff that has worked for me and many of my patients. So, um, it's less traditional. I do miss. Uh, I do miss the kind of old school, you know, just throwing a bit of iron around. But I can't do that anymore. So uh, any any other way of getting that that feeling, I try. So for people listening, I'm sure they're fascinated. I mean, we've gone all over the place, and that's what I love about these conversations. You have a firefighter that became an osteopath is, is incredible. Um, if they want to learn more about the Move to Improve method or other elements of your work, where are the best places to look online? Um, so I have a website that is in process of development, but there is um, on the Move to Improve method website, there's a contact page on there. Um, also, there's... Um, I have a small website about my clinical work, uh, David osteopathy.com, bit of a mouthful. I need to think of something catchier than that, mate. Um, but again, there's contacts on there. Or listen, if you want to hook, you want to um, hit me up on LinkedIn. Um, I'm on, I don't do a lot of social media um, at this point um, for various reasons. But I, sometimes I just think it's not great, uh, but obviously it's a necessity, obviously, these days. But LinkedIn, you can find me on. So, yeah, message me on there. And, um, yeah, um, I'll get back to you if you want any advice. Beautiful. Well, David, I want to say thank you so much. It's been such a great conversation. We talked for well over two hours now. But uh, again, like all these amazing humans I have on, you know, you never know where the the conversation is going to go and where you know the life story kind of spits out these great tangents. But it's been invaluable to learn a whole different kind of discipline when it comes to pain. So thank you so much for being so generous with your time today. James, thank you. Uh, um, thank you for being generous and letting let me on your podcast. It's been great and hopefully we'll do it again. Thank you.